Welcome back to Mastering Retail, a podcast brought to you by Flywheel Digital. You're listening to This Month Above the Fold, a monthly series on the Mastering Retail feed where one of our digital commerce experts covers the most important e-commerce stories each month. And this is your September 2023 recap. I'm Emma Irwin, Senior Editor and Specialist at Flywheel, and I have Patrick Miller here, co-founder and co-president of Flywheel Digital here with me. We matched with the pink today. Yes, exactly. Good salmon Yes. How was your September? The weather sucked. It was like, it was cold and it was rainy here. And, you know, usually fall is my favorite time of year. And it's both been extremely busy with work and the weather has sucked. And one of the awful parts about this job is that it's like, it consistently is like the most busy when the weather is nicest, which is when the weather's awful, it's like slow. And, you know, I'm just like, well, what am I going to go do? Perfect. Okay. Today... We're going to cover the FTC's lawsuit against Amazon, Prime Video introducing limited ads in 2024, and Walmart Marketplace hitting 100,000 active sellers. So up first and probably one of the most circulated stories this month is that FTC lawsuit. And you told me you read this cover to cover. So let's start with what exactly the FTC is calling out as wrongdoing by Amazon, just so we're all on the same page. Sure. So it's principally focused on market definition of an online superstore as well as FBA as a requirement or sometimes requirement for prime eligibility for an ASIN. I think what's actually sort of most interesting is actually what's not in it. (laughs) Number one, like it's redacted to the end of the earth. If we can get an unredacted version, it will be lovely reading, but I, I sort of doubt that. But really interesting is nothing about private label. And so for all the hemming and hawing about Amazon's private label business, there's nothing there. And that's, you know, I I think for, you know, one really big reason, they make more money on the marketplace than they do on private label. And private label is a tiny, tiny, um, you know, percent of their business. And Amazon has throttled back on private label, you know, um, you know, over the last six months. So it not having private label after, you know, sort of all their efforts around it, um, you know, I found uh, super interesting. Let's say... The FTC wins here. What does that mean for those who sell on Amazon and then consumers who buy from Amazon? If they won, the complaint does not actually make a suggested what the FTC wants. So sort of that will come out over time if they win. I would think sort of the, the most extreme example would be, you know, spinning off the logistics arm, you know, i.e. FBA. But they've already kind of done that. And so it, it is already sort of a scalable service that, you know, folks, you know, can use however they want. And, you know, FBA is almost a standalone. And with Prime with Prime, you can actually use FBA to fulfill, you know, your D2C site. So in many ways, that's already happened. So I don't know how they would they would end up doing it. And a lot of the complaint focuses on, you know, sort of the, you know, a market definition of an online superstore. I've been in this business for a decade. I've never heard anyone use that language before. And when you look at how they define this market, it excludes D2C. It excludes grocery. It excludes click and collect. Well, Amazon competes with all three of those. And so to exclude very clear competitors makes absolutely no sense. And to me, it's denominator manipulation or in order to create a narrative that allows the FTC to, you know, to push this. And this isn't for all three years that I've been in the industry, this isn't the first time the FTC has sued Amazon before. Do you think for the rest of Amazon's existence, this is just going to be like a recurring thing that happens? Will the FTC ever give up? I think 
having strong regulators is really good, but big is not necessarily bad. And I think there's, and it takes regulators a while to catch up with technology and how quickly it moves. I was reading some, some legal articles last week around, there's the idea of like price collusion and, you know, sort of, Hey, could two retailers, you know, collude if they set price together, you know, I mean, the longstanding law that that would be collusion, but could you have algorithmic collusion? Even if it, you know, sort of, if you have bots creating price, could they actually collude with other retailers, which is the FTC sort of, you know, starts to talk about this a bit in the complaint. And then even they sort of cut Project Nessie, which we've been aware of for, I mean, it goes back, I don't know, six, seven years or so. So it's, you know, a lot of this is, you know, somewhat older news, but when is it a human making a decision? When is it an algo? Is the intent of the algo, i.e. the human behind it, to do something that is in violation of the law? Or is that a second order effect based off of how it's goal seeking? So I, I actually find that really interesting. And then, you know, longer term, you know, sort of as, you know, sort of AI becomes more and more prevalent here. Uh, okay, well, what does that mean for pricing? And so, you know, all of these, I, I think, will become interesting. I think it's great that we have a strong regulator, um, but I think they've really missed the mark, you know, on this complaint. Interesting. Okay. Story number two is Amazon's introduction of ads for Prime Video coming in 2024. And my first thought when I saw the story, I was like, they don't already do this, but I'm not an avid Prime Video user except for a football game here and there. So I know that ads eventually get introduced because streaming platforms want additional sources of income, right? But why now for Amazon? I think they, they sort of patiently watched what was happening with Disney and what was happening with Netflix. And both of them, Netflix first said, hey, we're going to introduce, you know, number one, we're going to crack down on password sharing. And two, we're going to introduce, you know, an ad streaming tier. And so they then lowered the price of that ad streaming tier and then, you know, sort of and then, and then crack down concurrently on password sharing. After pushing that, they, you know, created a, you know, so there's about 5 million active uh, monthly active users within their ad supported tier. Uh, Disney then sort of went and did the same thing, and their monthly active users are about 3.5 million. That's tiny reach. And so they sort of solved one problem and created another in the sense that advertisers then look at that, you know, 5 million people and they're like, well, that's, that's subscale. So why? And there's no way to solve for frequency across these multiple platforms. So, you know, advertisers are going to be like, well, why am I going to invest in, especially when Netflix was, you know, originally asking for like $50 CPMs, they later pulled back on what their ask are. Well, Amazon saw that and they're like, okay, what's another way we could do this? And they said, I know we're going to then say everybody gets ads. And if you don't want the ads, you can opt out of them and pay an extra three bucks a month. And so instantaneously, their addressable audience, you know, in the US is, you know, about 100 million folks. So it's 20 times the size of Netflix. So from an advertiser perspective, you're like, yeah, that's, that's, that is scaled reach. And I think the really smart thing that Amazon's doing here is now is also saying, hey, we're going to keep the ad load extremely low. And so, you know, and, and so the Delta, so it's $3 per analyst estimate that Netflix is making on the ads business, you know, an, an incremental yeah, four-ish dollars or so a month. And so Amazon, they can exceed that via strong ads, you know, without oversaturating customers. And so if they keep the ad load low and it's great content, customers are going to say, hey, this is relevant to me. This is entertaining. This is good content and ain't that many of them. So why would I pay the extra $3 a month? So I think it's it's a great move. And I think it opens up a lot of interesting options, you know, for brands. And there was a newsletter by Brian Weiser of Madison and Wall posted somewhere in our Slack network. But that kind of introduced me to the idea that viewers have an unusually high tolerance to pay more for streaming services 
in order to avoid ads. But Brian's thesis in this piece is that the capacity of television to support reach-based marketing goals is increasingly compromised each passing year. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. I mean, 20 years ago, there's three networks or, you know, four, if you add Fox, if you're thinking in the, in the States. And so now it's, you know, and everybody said like, hey, I want to get rid of the cable bundle. You know, I hate Comcast, you know, et cetera. And now we all have like, you know, five different bills and we're like, it's fractured and we can't find what we want for advertisers. It's fractured. They, you know, they've got to solve for frequency across all these platforms. It's really tough. It's actually, and so it's almost like customers are now saying, hey, I want to rebundle and take me back to the Comcast days. So it's sort of like, what is that solve? I expect consolidation here um, longer term. Disney has certainly started, you know, talking about their uh, linear properties. You know, I, I doubt they would, you know, get rid of the streaming, but, you know, still there likely will be consolidation here. And the other thing to your point of sort of how do they get mass reach and, and larger audiences? Well, it's exactly what you said when you started, and that's live sports. And so if I'm, you know, any of these leagues, what do I want more than anything else? I want to create not national leagues. I want to create international leagues. You know, that's why the NFL is over in London. And that's why we have, you know, more and more, you know, football, American football in uh, not American football, yeah, soccer coming over to us, trying to be respectful of my British colleagues, but screw that one up. <laughs> and that's why we have more and more soccer in the States. And so what I would look for is, you know, more and more partnerships between sports leagues and the big tech, because big tech, you know, unlike the networks, you know, has a global reach. And so whether it's Google and YouTube, whether it's Amazon Prime Video, or whether it's Apple and, and Apple Plus, they are giving these leagues the opportunity to get reach that they could not have that is in line with these uh, leagues goals, and which is also in line with the advertisers goals. So what I would expect to see more and more of that, and it's more and more pressure for the uh, the, the older networks. And this is a slight diversion, but it is going to be the closest relation to any of our stories. And we never talk about ourselves on this specific podcast. Most of Mastering Meetel, we don't really talk about all of our capabilities. But Flywheel recently co-built a customer LTV dashboard with Amazon ads utilizing AMC data. And very quickly, I would love for you to kind of tell me about this and maybe tie customer lifetime value to this story in some capacity. Sure. So like what we looked at when you look at traditional search, you know, hey, put a nickel into the machine. Do I get a dime back or, you know, or quarterback typically third within three minutes? And that's great. Like it works amazing. But how did that search start? And what was that customer, you know, exposed to beforehand? And how do we sort of pull folks into that funnel or that, that cylinder, whatever you want to call it? And we know television works. You know, you can look back over decades and decades of how well television works. However, it's really tough to then say, hey, I'm going to run one 30-second spot. What happens? And how much money did I get back? And, and ROAS on a short-term basis like, is not the right metric. And so we have to be a bit more patient as we measure. And historically, folks have used probabilistic methods, you know, mostly via MMMs to say, hey, you know, using regression, you know, what's the correlation of my spend, taking into account product, price, promotion, place, et cetera. And, you know, hey, what happened? And now we can actually do that deterministically and we can start to use AMC to say, hey, customer saw ad. Well, what did they do? Did they search for a product later? Did they buy it? Um, do they buy it once? They buy it twice. Amazon's phenomenal at reselling items and brands, you know, historically have not been able to see just how good they are at reselling. And so it connects sort of the far upper funnel with the long-term relationship that Amazon allows brands to build um, with a customer. Boom. Thank you for that. And let's get into story number three, which is that Walmart has reached 100,000 active marketplace sellers, which is a doubling in size over the last 18 months. And marketplace items count for over 95% of items listed on walmart.com. 
I've seen this push from Walmart leadership for Marketplace, and we even just recently launched Mastering Retail episodes covering Walmart Marketplace and Walmart Fulfillment Services. Little plug for myself on my own podcast. But what is your take on Walmart's long-term strategy here with Marketplace? They now practically have selection parity with Amazon. And so they now have sort of basically the endless aisle, hundreds of millions, you know, of SKUs on their listed within the marketplace. And that gives, you know, Walmart a couple advantages. Number one, it allows a customer to find whatever they're looking for. And so, you know, physical store, typically a Walmart Supercenter has typically 120,000 or so SKUs. They now have hundreds of millions. So endless aisle that goes on forever. But these sellers also have two really big advantages financially. Number one, Walmart does not have to carry the cost of the inventory. So they, you know, that's in a decrease in cost for them, but they also just get a, you know, a cut of the sale. And so it's a much higher margin business than traditional retail. And then number two, commensurate with their efforts around the ads business, um, it tends to be that sellers will spend a higher percentage of uh, GMV than large brands. So they, because this is their primary channel of distribution. So they're in, able to sort of get more yield out of those customers from an ad basis. And those brands also are going to create additional auction density. So that auction density will also then push up the price of CPCs and CPMs for the large suppliers. So for Walmart, it's a win-win. It's additional selection, which, which customers love. It's additional margin uh, via marketplace versus traditional retail. It's additional take rate because they'll spend more on ads and it creates more auction density, which pushes up the price for um, large suppliers. So this has been a critical effort by Walmart. And, and to me, what, what I'm looking forward to seeing is when is, you know, what's the next anchor? What's the next brand that comes, um, you know, that's an insurgent brand, that's a challenger that gets distribution in one of many of Walmart's 4,800 stores. And that's a game changer when they pull that off. 90% of Americans shop in a Walmart at least once a year. Um, so they have incredible reach. And if they can make that transition, you know, from a marketplace seller to, uh, you know, in-store face out, that's a tectonic shift in, in the industry. For sure. And we're referencing a Marketplace Pulse article for this story. But the author of Marketplace Pulse, Joe, mentions that Marketplace utilizing store fulfillment is a key critical integration to unlock for Walmart as Marketplace orders are not currently fulfilled by means of the store. But I was thinking about this, and then that would have to mean that a large chunk of Walmart stores either have to dedicate space to hold more inventory for fulfillment, or the shelves are going to need to get much deeper in a store to have more items displayed, which seems unlikely. Do you agree that that integration is like a critical next step for Walmart? And my follow-up question is, how does Walmart scale efficiently in that regard? Yeah, so I, I think what one of the things that's going to happen is that it's it's asynchronous shopping in the sense that hey, I'm going to Walmart, you know, and I need cough syrup and I need bananas and I need, you know, to cook dinner for my family. I need that right now. But I also need, you know, a cell phone charger and a USB-C USB cable. I don't care if that comes in a day or two. And so one of the things that I think they need to figure out, it's sort of not, yes, maybe they create, you know, semi-dark stores. I, I think that's certainly a potential. But I think you could do more with software and the ability to say, hey, some of this stuff is going to come in a couple hours and some of this stuff is going to come in a couple of days. You know, sort of so knowing what is in, you know, the customer's best interest, you know, how do they have, you know, sort of, you know, you know share in that great value, you know, while also providing the selection and the convenience relative to the importance of the SKU and the urgency of the family that's ordering, you know, from Walmart at that time. Got it. One of the last questions for you. I'm curious, and I think I, I know, but what is the most interesting story this month to you? I mean, they're all interesting. These are always fun <laughs> stories because we get to pick them. So I, I mean, I think the FTC is going to be the most interesting. You know, I mean, that has the, you know, that has the, 
largest sort of potential impact. But I, I personally don't think it's going to go anywhere. So I don't know, it's quite a nothing burger, but I guess it's probably the most important one. But I think all of them are, are just showing just how much this industry is changing and how much brands need to think about this, you know, this space differently. And what was true, you know, even six months ago is not true now. And I think all three of these stories within different vectors show just how rapidly everything is changing. That's what I figured your answer would be. <laughs> that was a dodge. <laughs> <laughs> Last question for you. What are you looking forward to the most in October? We have all kinds of early access sales going on. It's Halloween and you have a little kid, which just has to be very exciting. What are you looking most forward to? I mean, buying Halloween costumes are, are you know, is always fun. So our oldest wants to be a dinosaur. Uh, our youngest, uh, I don't know what he wants to be. He's much more docile, so we can probably dress him up as whatever we want. Yeah, so Halloween will be fun. The invented holidays. Uh, my expectation, we're seeing a lot of promotional activity. The learning from last year, you can pull forward demand. I think as you know, we see consumers all of a sudden paying student loans again, and we see sort of, especially in you know semi durables and hard lines and discretionary categories. You know, there's a lot more price sensitivity, so I expect to see a lot more promotional activity. Even though, um, from an inventory perspective, most categories are in a much better spot. Yeah, so you know, I think that'll be fun. I'm looking forward to a little bit of fall weather, and uh, yeah, be, it's always entertaining to see Q4. Of course. Thank you. We've done it again. And that's it for this month's e-commerce news. Tune in next month for our October recap and be sure to share this episode if you enjoyed it. I'm Emma Irwin and I'll see you next time. Hey, like what you're hearing? If you'd be interested in partnering with Flywheel to grow your e-commerce business, we have an offer for a potential audit of your catalog on Amazon, Walmart, or Target from the Flywheel team. They're always curious to dive into media strategies and content optimizations, so reach out today by emailing us at audit at flywheeldigital.com.